Hello and welcome to Talking Bottom. I'm Paul Tanter. I'm Ange Pearson. And I'm Matt Brooks. And we are thrilled to be joined today by a very special guest. He's a writer of both fiction and non-fiction with over a dozen books under his belt and a vocal supporter of clean energy who's been way ahead of the curve when it comes to advocating for electric cars. As a comedian, he was part of the rise of the alternative comedy scene in the theatre group The Joeys. And as a presenter, he made Scrapyard's Cool on Scrap Heap Challenge and Science and Engineering accessible in Hollywood Science and How Do They Do It? We owe him a huge thanks for his brilliant web series Carpool, which has not only entertained us, but informed more than a few of our questions in previous interviews on this podcast. As an actor, his television work includes The Corner House, which he also wrote, A Christmas Carol, KYTV, The Pilot for Not the Nine O'Clock News, Colin Sandwich, Birds of a Feather, and of course, over 30 years wearing a rubber mask and sorting through Lister's fetid underpants as a universe's favourite series 4000 mechanoid Crichton in the epic BBC sitcom Red Dwarf. But our listeners will recognise him, not least because for once he wasn't under a mask, for his turn as a one-legged Falklands veteran who quite literally smashes Richie's face in in the bottom episode parade. Robert Llewellyn, thank you for being here. It's an absolute honour to have you talking bottom with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, your introduction, I suddenly started remembering things I have done. (laughs) You know, I went, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Birds of a feather. (laughs) <laughs> Birds of a Feather, I'd totally forgotten about Birds of a Feather. I played a Tory MP in Birds of a Feather. Oh, no. Yeah, shocking. Well, they're, the, they're the good, yeah, they're the bastards to play, yeah, though, yeah. aren't they? They're more yeah. fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd like to begin, Robert, by asking how you did get into acting in the first place. I mean, it's a cliche in a way to say that, but my I, it was just that once I did a, a talk at RADA at the drama school in London, because a friend of mine works there, still works there occasionally. And it was, uh, you know, and it was to give a talk to the graduating students about working in television. So they got people in from different fields and, you know, proper and proper actors. They should be because they're proper actors that train there. I'm definitely not. So my explanation of how I got in showbiz was I went round the back of the building that's called showbiz to have a cigarette, leant against the door and they'd forgotten to lock it and I fell in. You know, that's about what it feels like because I definitely wasn't on that path you know, like at school, I, at the school play that uh, that was done when I was there, I paint, helped paint the set. I definitely didn't act in it. I had no interest in acting in it and, no, and didn't know, pe- even my peer group weren't sort of actors. It was, it was you know, and, they were, and I, I remember the kids who were really into acting and I wasn't in their circle. Right. So it was definitely a very peculiar thing, but I definitely wanted to write. And so that's how I got into it. So I wrote sketches for... Some two comedians that I knew who did a double act and that developed slowly into, you know, they said, well, can you do this part? Cause I'd write for more than two people. And I don't think it was a conscious thing. It's just the way it's, it was structured. And, uh, and I, so I had to do it. And that was the most terrifying still, I think the most terrifying night, which doesn't involve physical danger, which I then experienced later at doing weird TV shows, but, you know, really frightening, vomit inducing anxiety about going on a stage. I'd never done it. Maybe I was, I think I might have been in the, the school Christmas play at primary school, you know, as a, one of the kings or something. I can't remember, but nothing like this. And thankfully, that night, people laughed. That would have been about 1980. And, and pe- enough people laughed that you, that you sort of thought, oh, maybe I can, I don't know. I mean, it was a huge turning point in my life. But it was a tiny event. It was probably 90 people in the audience. It wasn't a big theatre or anything. It was just a little pub room in East London. And that was sort of transformative. And then I think within six months, I was then 
performing full time. Um, was that how your cabaret group, the Joeys, were formed? Yeah. So th those two guys. Then we then with a, with a musician, we then formed it was a, a, a four man operation, the Joeys, which lasted for about five years mm. and became very successful. Considering we really didn't do television, the only TV shows we did were new, we did Newsnight. <laughs> we were interviewed on Newsnight by Joan Bakewell. That was quite extraordinary, and a few other kind of tiny bits of. TV, but there's very, very little because that wasn't, we didn't want to be on telly. That was the whole point. We just thought TV's like bourgeois. <laughs> so stupid. Of course. And you were, you were, of course, co-writing and performing the material then for the Joeys. There, yeah. there were a lot of political and social messages as part of your work. Um, yeah. Watching the men rap. Yes. Uh, just in researching. And um, it's a real comment on what people would now call toxic masculinity. Yeah. Um, yes. Which is, didn't, is that term didn't you know, to you, or it was important to you to have something to say while yeah. getting the laughter. Yes, absolutely. Much more important in a sense than anything else. I mean, I think the thing was at that time, you know, that I think it was the, that I was exposed to pretty hardline feminism, as in through the women I knew at a fairly formative age, you know, when I was a late teenager. So I would have been a classic, unthinking, reactionary, sexist male by today's standards. Uh, uh, you know, I would have been a bubbling stew of toxic masculinity and then I met then I met a lot of feminists I lived in a squat in London with four women who were three of whom are in direct, directly involved with setting up the first rape crisis center in the UK it was an American concept that they imported and they were law students still know a couple of them and they were to put it bluntly terrifying to a, a, <laughs> a, a, a young man who was you know tentatively heterosexual <laughs> A lot of people thought I was gay, and I realised that was quite a good thing to trade on because it made you less dangerous. So I didn't really dissuade that, but basically I was—I I am horrifyingly heterosexual, and I just love gay. I love the company of gay men socially. Mm. I don't know how rude we can be, but a very good gay friend of mine said, "You love cock, darling, but only one—your own." <laughs> really <laughs> solved solved all my issues. Well, oh, I wonder if I am gay, really? You know, no, you're not, mate. <laughs> you're not interested in anyone else's, just your own. But so that, but that, I think men go through, certainly at that stage, so this was in the mid 1970s, very different era. But I think you would go through the thing where you, you would react to those criticisms that you got from women by going, oh, they're just lesbians that hate men. They're men haters. I, they're all bitches. I hate them. Or, which is what I went like sitting my own on my own in my room when the, after I'd had my ear chewed off, going oh, shit, they're right, <laughs> <laughs> and that was the difference, and that took a lot of you know it was a really difficult thing because if you met a woman that you liked and you fancied and she basically thought you were an asshole rapist, it was quite difficult to form a gentle, <laughs> you know, equal balanced relationship, and there were a lot of. I, I'm sure it's happening now and it will be, and I'm just not aware of it. But, it, you know, I, I remember making tea for about 20 women who came around to a women's group and I had to leave the house, but I was allowed to make them tea when, when they arrived. And about 10 of those lived in a, a separatist feminist commune. They had nothing to do with men in any way at all. And it was a real radical offshoot of, of radical feminism. Mm. And I thought they were amazing. And one of those women was drop dead stunning and I was just drooling all over her and made her a cup of tea. Who's cup of tea? I love you. <laughs> Don't hate me. I'm not a rapist. You know, it was a, so it was a really extraordinary balance of trying to be politically correct by today's terms and also still fancying the women who you shouldn't even look at. 
even it's looking at them was formative experience i think is obviously if you grow so it did have a big yeah that did have and it was just a kind of we were trying to find a way to express the the idea of being men but not being sex so it was like being non-sexist men and it was such a contradiction in terms and such a minefield but it was quite good fun so we did sketches about two wrestlers who were would wrestle with ideas not physical contact so and, and and who would be more politically correct than the other so they do each other's heads in being like well of course i was aware that there are homosexuals in the world and i don't judge them like you do you know it was all about one upping you know which you know even which we had experienced in men's groups that men are competitive about being non-competitive yeah, yeah well people call it virtue signaling now virtue signaling now which is a yeah. deeply offensive term but i've tried to turn it against the people who virtue signal or accuse me of virtue signaling. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we should all be able to have a good discussion, I think. Is the yes, main, I think the it's the main thing. And I, I hope kind of from your, your carpool with Aid, uh, with Aid Edmondson, you obviously yeah. talked about it. And it was just a great summary when Aid just said, yeah, it's ironic you cunt. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know the, the sexism yeah. in bottom is, is ironic. Um, yes, it is. Uh, I mean, there were times when I went, that's close to the line when the woman from the battered women's refuge came up to collect money and he <laughs> yeah. punched her and stole the money. You know, <laughs> was, I was impressed with how far they were they were, they were prepared to push it. I mean, and I think particularly because of w living with those women back in the 70s, you know, who were effectively running a battered women's refuge or a, a rape crisis centre, you know, you go, oh, no, okay. But, you know, hats off to them because it was an extraordinary... I, I can't remember any other, I'll say this right now, any other TV series that I've watched where I've had to walk out of the room because I can't breathe properly because I'm having like a panic attack from laughing so much. And that was then when uh, Aid was pulling the nose hair out of Rick's nose with the pliers in the bathroom. The most pathetically stupid slapstick nonsense comedy just cracked me up i couldn't breathe properly it's, it's amazing physical comedy isn't it yeah incredible incredible and i mean that was i mean we i mean you ask because i mean i did come across them long before bottom i mean you know before yeah. the young ones initially certainly rick rick i remember very clearly but well so just to talk about days of alternative comedy before you were a performer do you recall your first experience of seeing what we would now call alternative comedy was there a sort of formative thing where you saw someone on stage and thought I could do that, or I'm, I, this is a big thing. Bizarrely, no, I think is the answer, because, I mean, I went to the theatre quite a lot. So, for instance, my mother was very arty and uh, and uh, oppressed for her generation and quite angry. <laughs> you know, grew up in a sort of 50s, uh, extremely sexist culture and was a bright uh, woman who was very frustrated by the world and men in particular. And so I went to the theatre a lot with her, so I'd seen quite a lot of live theatre and it had... I loved watching it. It had no appeal. I did not want to wear tights and remember lines or anything like that. You know, it was just not. But I enjoyed watching it. And then I would basically, I, I don't want to go over the whole story, but I left school. Yeah, I was potentially an academic kid who went off the rails in my teens. I think testosterone kicked the hell out of me uh, academically. So I was at a grammar school doing quite well. And then it really went wrong. And eventually I was expelled from school uh, just when I was just 16 mm. and went off to make my way in the world. So very early, left home very young. And I became a shoemaker. So it's a long story. I don't need to go into it. But I became an apprentice shoemaker with a bespoke shoemakers in London. And so it had nothing to do with theatre or performing. So I would have gone to movies. I love going to the movies. I went to the theatre quite a lot, but nothing... I don't think I even was aware 
because comedians to me meant Benny Hill, Les Dennis. I don't know. It meant people often men in ruffle fronted shirts making sexist and racist yeah. jokes. You know, so that, the, the comedians show. On yeah. Yeah. So I knew that. And some of them made me laugh. It wasn't, I don't, and Morecambe and Wise, you know, I love them. And, uh, you know, that wasn't that oh, I was found them all loathsome. Frankie Howard, I remember loving Frankie Howard. And, you know, but it, but I had no idea any of this was going on. The way I came into the that world was through the Joeys. So it, that was it was that way round rather. So then I became extremely aware of it very quickly after I started performing. And then I was hugely impressed by numerous people I saw then. I mean, but, but you know, certainly Rick very, very clearly, I saw him a couple of times. Where did yeah. you see him? What, in what capacity? At the comic strip? Uh, the, the comic, comic strip. And so I'd met Nigel Planer. That's, it's, it, it's lost. Neither of us can remember. Nigel <laughs> <laughs> and I can't remember where we went. But I met Nigel before The Young Ones a couple of times, and I saw him doing Neil, the character he did in The Young Ones, on stage in a quite a posh club on Baker Street that was a comedy venue one night a week. Now, I cannot remember what that was called. And I would think it was fairly short-lived as such. Uh, and he was on, John Dowie was on, Nigel was, did it, can't remember. But he did Neil where he was sort of whining and, and you know, doing his Neil character and how awful it was to be at school called Neil because he'd be kneeling and they'd say, Neil, stand, <laughs> Neil, stand. And he did kneeling down and standing up. <laughs> Tragic. But so I'd known night. So then by the time the young ones appeared, I was then fully full-time joeying around the country. And suddenly this guy I'd met a few times, I didn't really know him well, but we'd always got on well, was on the telly, like proper telly as a hippie in the young ones, which was like, the young ones was mind boggling that that happened, you know, at that time. That came, for me, that came completely out of the blue, even though I'd met these people and done gigs by then, had done gigs with the Dangerous Brothers and, the, and Rick on his own. And was it, were they, because I always get remember. 20th Century Coyote. That was Rick and Aid, was it? 20th yes, century. and the Dangerous Brothers. The, yeah. the 20th Century Coyote was what they uh, went by in their university days. And I think that's they, right. No, but that was Rick and um, the and man Aid. who did. Oh, was that Rick and Abe? Because who did Rick did stuff with the guy that? Oh no, no, Nige did stuff with the guy who directed the comic strip. And oh, I can't that, that, that was the Outer Limits. That was with with Peter Richardson. Peter yeah. Richardson, thank you, thank you. That was what. So that's where. Uh, yeah. So it's all in, lost in the mist of time a bit. Anyway, there was one particular gig that we did for the, which was would have been a bit later then. So the Miners' Strike, 1982. We did a few gigs for the Miners' Strike, and I was always conflicted. And I do remember long conversations in backs of vans, which was a precursor to what I later went on to do. I was going. I don't think mining is a good job. You know, sending people down a hole to dig up coal that's really dirty and we shouldn't be burning coal. I definitely remember having that. I didn't have an alternative to burning coal, but I just meant this is it's really 19th century. It's time to move on. So therefore defending jobs where people have to do incredibly dangerous work, which where they mostly die young because of what happens to them breathing and, the, you know, all that stuff was I was conf I was a conflicted uh, mine miners supporter, but anyway, we did that. We, and we did a gig at the uh, Islington Town Hall where we wrote a song, which I've tried to remember. I've got no record of it. It wasn't particularly brilliant, but we wrote a song in, in support of the miners, which we wrote the music and rehearsed and did a dance routine and did. It took ages, like two days hard work, and then we did it that night. It's the only time we ever performed it, and it went down fine. They liked it. It was supportive. They clapped. 
they might even have laughed once during the song. I can't remember. It was fine. And then yeah. we went off feeling all sort of, you know, aren't we good? Aren't we? We, we were virtue signaling. That'll change things. Take that yeah. back. Well, yeah. then, and then Rick walked on after that, immediately after us. He walked uh, on and all he said was, do you want to see my pants? That was his <laughs> entire piece. He did about 15 minutes of that. And he had his, you know, army blanket underpants that came up to his nipples. Uh, you could see out. Uh, and it was just incredible. I was at the back of the room. It's quite a big hall. I would think it's probably four or 500 people there in hysterics. And he just did a look. He said, do you want to see my pants? <laughs> he may, I, if he said anything else, I can't remember it. He probably did say something else, but it was just went on and on. People just in hysterics. And he just walked around in his special walk with his hideous underpants. <laughs> what was the reaction to the young ones uh, when it came out? Do you remember, you know, did you get an impression was this is something new and exciting? Oh, Has yeah. there been anything like this before? Yeah. yeah. No, it was absolutely, I mean, I think we were very jealous but also we realised it was so different to anything we were doing, you know. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that is, is kind of important to remember is that, which I learnt much later, is that the four of us, is this fair? I'm just trying to make sure. Yeah, had, none of us had been to university. So um, uh, Nigel, who was our musician, had, uh, was a very skilled industrial designer and he'd done that, but he'd done like technical college, polytechnic study the rest of us hadn't been i didn't go to university none of us did so we weren't out of that world and in a way i projected onto rick and a that they were kind of they met at uni and they're overprivileged and you know that was my early would have been my early criticism of them which is very unfair and and in a way why i got on with nigel plenty because nigel was slightly outside that world and it was only later that i then met people like stephen fry hugh laurie emma thompson who really really <laughs> Really? were from a hyper-privileged background who really went to, you know, the most exclusive university and were phenomenally successful from very early on. You know, just that was definitely a bone of contention. That's really interesting, though, that you felt that way about Rick and Aid for them having been to even Manchester University. Yeah. And the divide, because often people talk about Oxbridge. And yes, yeah. I mean, I think we were just fairly insecure in every aspect. Now, looking back, you know, in every aspect of our lives. Because that was a, there was a, a little interesting Rick story that we went to, we played at the University Theatre in Manchester, the Joeys did, and it was brilliant. We had a brilliant gig there. There were really wonderful audiences. This was at the in-between series one and two of the young ones when we did that. And we were kind of put up in different houses all around the town by the people at the university. We didn't stay in a hotel. It was all very budgety. And I stayed in a really lovely sort of, bit of a feminist squat I felt very at home I can't remember where it was in Altringall or somewhere in, somewhere in Manchester and Nige stayed in a house in a sort of we dropped him off in the van we sort of had all these addresses I dropped he dropped him off there after the gig and he went in there and I did notice when he opened the door there was a huge picture of Rick Mayle in the like that faced the door really like a life-size if not bigger photograph of him pinned to the wall which I thought was a bit odd but then we carried on so we later found out that that was the house of his then girlfriend, right. and this is the problem with memory because she co she Lisa Myers Lisa Myers. Thank you very much. So it was her father's house. He was a, a teacher, a lecturer at Manchester University. So Nige stayed there, and Rick was there writing the young ones series two with Ben Elton, you know, and Lisa. And when I, I never saw any of them then, and then Nige came out and went. Wow. I've just had a really weird breakfast with Ben Elton. Oh, <laughs> Rick Mayer, wow. And we went, oh, my God, what were they there? You know, we had no idea. 
<laughs> Obviously, The Young Ones was a huge hit across its two series. And many of the creatives, so three of the of the main four of the cast and Ben Elton went on to do Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, yeah. which was sort of a look at their entry into the world of entertainment. Was that something that you watched and uh, and that you enjoyed? No, less, much less so. I mean, I was an obsessive Young Ones fan and Filthy Rich and Cat Flap kind of yeah, it didn't work for me. And I just, and I was then became suspicious of what they were doing. Cause I went, this is a bit naff. Why have they done, why have they done this? It was very, whereas the comic strip, I mean, that's the thing we haven't mentioned. The comic strip I thought was legendary. You know, some of the best opening and middle bits of any TV comedy I'd ever seen. And always the shittest ending, like no ending, <laughs> just nothing. It just faded. They just stopped. You know, you'd be watching it and go, this is amazing. And then it would stop. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. That was it. utterly that, crap at endings, but brilliant ideas. Even, just they brilliant. didn't even do the Monty Python thing of just having the police turn up at the end to arrest everyone. To arrest it? No, nothing at all. But some of the funniest sequences, just and really clever, clever plays on you know contemporary ideas at the time. No, I love that. That yeah. was brilliant. So, as a performer, you were performing all through the eighties, and it's quite a well-known story that you were performing a show that Paul Jackson came to see. Yeah, um, uh, and that was what led to Red Dwarf. We just wondered, though, um, in terms of as a performer on stage, were you aware that there was a huge, big shot comedy producer in the audience? And if so, does that sort of focus the mind or does it induce nerves for a performer? Oh, no, no, absolutely the opposite. No, bizarre. Now, because it's what, what I'm always bad at is my chronolo chronology, chronolo whatever that word is, the timeline. So <laughs> Andrew Bailey, Andrew Bailey was a very popular comedian in that era on the circuit. Not he didn't do much telly, but he did do Friday Night Live, and he did a brilliant show where he would do he would be Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, and he would speak in mock Russian, but with occasional terms that you would understand. So he you would hear muesli, and then someone off stage would translate in my language. There is no word for muesli, <laughs> which was brilliant. So. On about 10 of those gigs that he did on the circuit, I did the voice. So I'd have a script. But you really had to be on the case because uh, Andrew was dyslexic and completely close to properly barking mad. Mm -hmm. So he would often go completely off script. And he'd say something, you know, he goes, Morris Minor. And I'd be going through the book. The fuck is the Morris Minor line? I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd just say, I have driven across the steps of Northern Russia in a Morris Minor, you know, just had to make stuff up. So then he got a booking on Friday Night Live with which Paul Jackson was uh, involved with. And I did the voice off stage. I wasn't, I didn't appear on it. And he went down a storm. It was very good. But I met Paul Jackson then, and I'd met him on other things. But, of course, I cannot now bloody remember what they were or what it was. I know that I was in a rehearsal room with Harry Enfield when he was doing Stavros oh, okay. uh, with Paul Whitehouse. And I sat with Paul Whitehouse. And anyway, so I'd met Paul Jackson a few times before he came up to me in Edinburgh and said, can I get a ticket for the show? And I said, no, because <laughs> it was sold out. I said, I don't know what to do. So I put a, eventually found a chair and I put it on the side of the stage. He wasn't in vision for most of the audience, although if you were on one, it was in a sort of horseshoe venue. So if you're on the far side, you would have seen him sitting in the dark at the side. It was the only way you could get him in. It was really packed out. So I actually was like, the hassle of getting a chair in and getting him in was the problem once the stage was on, because it wasn't, I didn't want to, I don't know. I mean, I didn't want to do, I was so high on the fact that this show that I'd written 
was such a success. I didn't give a toss about anything else, basically. That's the thing. Yeah. And I was, oh, I'd also had a meeting with Channel 4 who wanted to commission it as a series. So from my point of view, I'd hit pay dirt when I did. It was called Mammon, Robot Born of Woman. So it was about a robot. Mm. And the voice of Crichton, now I can see, was sort of used in there as, his inter- as the internal voice of the of the robot. So the external was my, my British middle-class accent, but the internally, it was a gently spoken computer voice. You know, it was that sort of thing when I had thoughts, that was how we did it on stage. And, and Crichton, um, Crichton, it wasn't Crichton, Mammon, his name was. There was one sequence where I copulated with a desk, which was a cheap, it was a bit bottomish. It was a cheap gag that I that went down a fucking storm every night. And it was brilliant to do, you know, so it always went because she, uh, my, my creator uh, uploaded some um, sexual awareness software and it obviously went wrong the first time. So I would just find any, any, any static object I'd find highly desirable. So, and there was a desk on the stage. It, I did hurt myself quite severely, and I was wondering whether I could ever have children. There was a couple of nights when I got a bit too carried away. <laughs> oh, anyway, so yeah, Paul Jackson didn't uh, not then, but then he later he basically talked me into doing Red Dwarf because at that time I was kind of you know I was hot comedy property for about twenty minutes. <laughs> I thought, in my own little world. And uh, the TV version of Mammon, Robot, Born a Woman never saw the light of day, which is probably just as well. So, yeah, so then I met Rob and Doug from, from Red Dwarf. I've been to several Dimension Jumps in the past, by the way, Robert, and I right. know there are no more questions possible that we could ask you left. <laughs> About Red Dwarf. And as we're talking bottom today, yeah. we're going to move on to bottom, if that's all right. But So obviously, you you know, you'd kind of worked with Rick and Aid alongside them, but you hadn't actually worked kind of together with them oh, no, anything no. then before bottom. No, not at all. No, I mean, I'd, I'd probably spoken to them half a dozen times at gigs, you know, and when I say spoken, I went, hi. <laughs> and and yeah. I love the young, I think I did do a bit of rapture about the young ones at some point, but, you know. But by then, I knew Nigel Planer quite well. So, so like... Um, by the 90s, I'd worked with Nigel a lot. We'd done a lot of stuff together. So by then, he and I were firm friends. So that was a, you know, there was a connection there. But then the, the main connection as to why I ended up at Bottom was Ed Bai. So Ed Bai was the director of Red Dwarf. That's what we wanted to ask. We've had Ed Bai on the show previously. Right. It was, it was Ed then that cast you in Bottom. I, I mean, I'm, I can't remember, but I'm, I'm assuming that is the reason. I can't see any other reason why I would have got in there because I didn't. I mean, I had quite a checkered acting career I think is the best way of putting it so I think I did go to like once I was doing Red Dwarf for a bit I did go to auditions to do acting like proper acting and it would have been around that time now I think about it that I did I got uh, uh, I got booked to do a series called Grushko which starred Brian Cox not the scientist the actor which was set in Russia so I filmed that in St Petersburg but it was a drama I wasn't a comedy character and it was, I was appallingly bad. I mean, really, you know, dreadful. I could not do it. And I had to do a slight Russian accent where you speak like that, but not too much. Because I would start to mm, talk like this. I am Russian. No, 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 no. That's too funny. <laughs> Calm it down. <laughs> but ama- amazing actors in it. So Andy Serkis was in that, the guy who went on to be Gollum and, yeah. and all sorts of things. Amazing. I, I mean, and I'd worked with Andy before. And he was chasing me through the streets of St. Petersburg as a Chechen hitman. <laughs> and the crew kept laughing when I was doing panicking, running for my life, running. I wasn't trying to be funny. I genuinely wasn't. I was trying to do 
this guy's trying to fucking kill me. I'm going to get into the park. And they just were in hysterics. And the uh, director got properly, like in movies where the director loses it and wants to kill an actor. He was <laughs> fucking furious because it cost a fortune. And I was pissing about, from his point of view, getting a you just cheap had funny phones. I don't know what it was. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I really wasn't trying to be funny. And of course, Andy is so fit. He'd be chasing me with a gun in a shell suit and he'd fucking overtake me. And I, <laughs> and I go, you just got to run slower. <laughs> anyway, sorry. That is so... I didn't want to do acting and I didn't want to do auditions. So that's why I think by the time I did Bottom, it would have had to be Ed saying, do you want to be in it? Like, not, you don't have to do an audition. <laughs> you know, Turn up on day one with your script and, and see what happens, you know. So that, I think that must have been it. But I, because you all know when that was recorded, because I've been trying to remember that, because I know my wife came to the recording and I think she was pregnant, which would place it in 1993. Right. Oh, well. The series two was, was out in 92, I think. Oh, so the 91 you... was 91. Well, this is 30 years on this year from the first series. From the one. first series. Okay. By the time it was broadcast, perhaps it was more like. No, but it was, I'm trying to remember, I remember Judy being at the actual recording. So I think that was, that must have been 92 then. So we hadn't got children. No, she wasn't pregnant. (laughs) Maybe that night. (laughs) We don't know. Just to celebrate the rap party. (laughs) No, she's told me when we made our son, who's lovely, he's now 27, 8, 28 any minute now, which was in Australia when I had jet lag, which I can't remember anything. So that's how, (laughs) that's how a lady gets you. Uh, (laughs) Get him when he's got jet lag. (laughs) I'll I have no that memory. Tip. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's your memory of when you first got the script for Parade, the episode you're in? It kind of been a bad day's work having to spend the whole day in the pub. Yeah, no, right? it was it was it was really no, it was enormous fun, and it was interesting because okay, so by then, so that was let's say it was ninety two. We'll agree on that. So eighty nine, we made Red Dwarf, and we rehearsed at the BBC's rehearsal rooms in at North Acton which are no longer there, which was this weird uh, like office block of, of uh, rehearsal rooms where you would get in a lift with any number of people that are, you know, properly famous British comedians, magicians, you know, or you know, funny people doing, or doing their rehearsals there. So the first year I did Red Dwarf, we rehearsed there. And in the next door office, if you like, rehearsal room on the same floor, two, two big rehearsal rooms on each floor, was Blackadder, was the final series of Blackadder. So it was that whole heady atmosphere of stuff. So when I went, I went back there to do the bottom rehearsals and I hadn't been there since 89, so nine, like a few years. And it was kind of amazing to go back to that place and do proper BBC rehearsals with proper, you know, markings on the floor where the set was going to be and all that stuff, like a proper old fashioned sitcom. It was extraordinary and lovely cast. Julia Sawala, if I got that right, yeah. was the barmaid who was mm-hmm. fantastic. I had met before and I can't now remember why, but anyway, I had. And also Chris Langham, who I'd known for a few years, whose <laughs> reputation is now slightly solid. <laughs> I think we, we were going to avoid mentioning him, yeah. but you sorry, I didn't mean to mention him. <laughs> but he was—he did have quite a big part in it for me, I suppose. <laughs> but that, yeah, that was great. And then it was all that stuff. I think I'm really glad that I did it at that time because I basically enjoyed it. I think if I had hadn't done any TV or not much before then, I would have been so terrified and anxious about it, you know, that mm-hmm. I wouldn't have enjoyed it. But because I'd done by then, I don't know, four series of Red Dwarf, I'd kind of got that down where I understood what, I, what was expected of me. And, I, you know, I don't know, I just, it was enormous fun to do. You mentioned, you mentioned the rehearsals. You must have loved it when you saw the blocking for the episode because, of course, your character is sat on the stall for the entire yeah. 
strapped to a stool. I mean, I was actually tied to a stool that was eventually had to be bolted down in some way because I, I kept falling off it. It was a very, <laughs> it was a real balancing act because you're basically on, oh, no, can't even, I know it was bloody uncomfortable because you had, I had two legs in, that's right, I was sitting at a really awkward sideways position having to twist around so that the false leg, it looked like I was facing that way, but actually my legs are that way. So I had to have both legs in one trouser leg that was sort of hidden next yeah. to the bar. And you have to be quite physical in that as well, because of course yeah. you're hitting uh, you're hitting Richie and so forth. Yes. What, uh, what do you what do you remember from filming? Well, I mean, I certainly remember in the rehearsals I hit him, which was terrible because I timed and that was my fault. I timed it wrong, so he was brilliant. I mean, it's so bad for you doing that head flicking, which he does so he did it so well, and we and he said, "Don't worry about it, just really go for it." And I went, "Oh God, it was so frightening." <laughs> And then, so I do the cut, but they, they had the guy in the rehearsal studio with a keyboard that did the punches. So that I just thought was the most brilliant thing in the world. So you'd go like that. There's no noise. And then you go, boom, oh, wow. <laughs> and he would hit those points so well. <laughs> and he had different, different noises, but he's there watching with his keyboard. <laughs> All that stuff was just fucking brilliant that was just that such give, fun that must give you a a, a big boost also when you're filming to be hearing it live yes I mean, you've got the absolutely that's no, not added on afterwards no they played that live which was but really is that, magical is that why you got carried away and actually gave rick a cut was it his jaw you caught yeah I punched him and, and i mean it's the thing you know i mean the two very good doctor mates of mine years ago said what we see in casualty on saturday night is people with broken hands is big tough blokes walking in with their fingers all smashed up because they've punched someone in the head their head is very solid mm -hmm. and your hands are quite delicate so their their um, advice to you if you want to get involved in violence is you always hit like that yeah hit with the hit with the palm of your hand under the chin that will and if you want to hurt someone really that's badly, what the doctors tell you a doctor told me that he said don't punch someone with your fist you're a bloody idiot so when i hit him it's the only time i've ever hit another human being with my fist in the head <laughs> it was really painful. I mean, it really hurt my hand, but I was so worried for it. So he'd done a head back, head forward, and I just timed it wrong and just caught okay. it. And it it did hurt him. I mean, he did stop, <laughs> but he kept saying, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. You can tell. <laughs> I think I hit him on the cheek rather than the jaw, which was good because then you can do a lot of damage in that. But yeah, that was not good. But that was not on the recording. That was in yeah. the rehearsals. Was, but that made was, me very much more careful when we were recording it. Yeah. Was uh, did the shoot go without incident? Was it was it a good record? Yes, I think so. From my memory of it, it was really su successful. So the bits I was in, I can I was very aware of the laughs it was getting, and that was oh you'll love this, you'll love this bit. So the first day we were in rehearsals with I had the full costume on, so it was a dress run. So I had the proper leg in the proper trousers that they'd use, and there was a huge amount of discussion and how that we do that bit but the bit where he puts his hand up my leg a bit and he goes mm. and then a bit further and goes well before he did that he held my shoulders he said you're right <laughs> and I said yeah so watch the master at work <laughs> uh, if any other comedian had done that or any performer I've ever met you'd go you pretentious twat <laughs> and I just went fucking brilliant what a joy so I sat there and he put his hand up <laughs> and then a little bit further <laughs> and he had like five grades of till <laughs> <laughs> he got his hand right up to undo the buckle. Oh. It was just, and then he pulled the leg out and it was just 
Yeah. I mean, it was just, I was in, when we were rehearsing that, I was just in hysterics. And I remember Ed getting a bit moody with me. Can you fucking hell, Robert, shut up. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't do my lines. I just was. Out you, of it, you know. managed to keep it together for uh, well, on the night. Yes, yeah. we, I did manage to keep it together, but it was, it was so. He was so funny. That you were was putty just, in Rick's hands. Yeah, I mean, it was an absolute. That was an absolute joy to work with them that time, and they were so. You know, I mean, I suppose they could be deverish and moody or whatever. They really weren't. I mean, they were very. It was very much treated like an ensemble performance you know with all the other other people in it do you recall what your character's name was because it's never mentioned in the episode but it the, but it is listed in the credits oh is it he has a name in the credits he has a name. i've got no he, idea his what name is it? mr n styles n uh, Styles. sorry yes i did <laughs> i'd forgotten because that episode has a few references to footballers so yeah Andy, nobby Andy styles yeah. plays a, a detective called chief inspector grobola which is bruce grobola yeah right. so must have been Rick and A putting in a few football references for that episode. I guess so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was never referred to in the script, was it? We didn't say, they didn't, no, no. They never asked me. Yes, I'd forgotten that. No, I did know that. Yes, I had forgotten that. <laughs> and you've mentioned you work with a lot of the cast in Parade, of course. Did you already know Lee Corns at all? And yes, yeah, no, I've done, done, I would think I'd probably met most of them before. You know, I wouldn't, they weren't like close buddies, but they were people I'd done gigs with. So Lee Corns definitely did a lot of shows where he would compare and introduce us all, you know, that kind of comedy circuit. You know, the Joeys were also from sort of 80, late 82, 86, 85, 86. We were doing five or six shows a week. We did we did hundreds of shows a year, literally hundreds of hundreds of performances. So we were all over the place on all sorts of bills, you know, of various types with all sorts of. So yeah, definitely. Um, isn't um, Andy De La Tour? Is he in it? Yeah. Yes. So Andy, I've done loads of stuff with Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, fantastic. And I mean, just to ask, though, obviously, you'd performed to audiences all over them. Was there a marked response from the audience in the in the bottom studio on the night of filming that you can remember? Was it more uproarious or? It was pretty, pretty hot. Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> I mean, by then, you know, the one of the uh, certainly don't want to talk about Red Dwarf, but, you know, that that was um, the, the, the two times when I've that I can remember clearly when I've gone. Oh my God, this is amazing! Is really blisteringly good. Joey's performances. No, we did a gig at the um, Royal Exchange in Manchester, which for some reason, out of hundreds of gigs, just stayed in my has stayed in my memory because it was exceptionally successful. And there was a massive queue for returns. We'd never been on the telly, and we had thousands of people trying to get in, and it was full. And it just went down a storm. And I just remember being on the stage, listening to people laughing again. This is incredible that this is happening i just couldn't believe it and the only other time i've really experienced is that is on red dwarf i think in particular pulling off uh, craig's shorts when we had to stop recording we couldn't hear each other because of the noise well the bottom recording was on a was bloody close to that it was phenomenal audience response from it um uh, you know and it was it was a bit i think i felt sort of one removed in a sense that it wasn't I didn't feel as involved in that as I did in Red Dwarf, I guess, because of, you know, just that doing that one episode. But it was a real, I think I was very aware that it was a privilege to do. Were you, know, you recognised from that episode? Like, I guess more so than because of Crichton, obviously, the, the mask and stuff. And, yeah. But, but your DNA episode, you show your face for the first yeah. time and then 
Yeah. Didn't, I mean, it is a, 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 the, I mean, my wife remembers this more in a way more than me, but you know, we used to go out and no one would come up to me in the streets. No one would look, say anything really around that period. So I had sort of 10 years of being in a successful BBC sitcom and, you know, it did happen, but it was very, very rare. It was usually, are you the bloke that does that thing with the head? <laughs> you know, it was that kind of level of stuff. And that was seriously like three times a year that happened. It was not a common thing. And that were you was ever great. Out with, were you ever, I say we don't want to talk about Red Dwarf. I'd love to talk about Red Dwarf. Yeah. Were you ever out with Chris and Craig oh, and Danny and everyone yeah. else was recognised and they were like, who are you? Oh God. I mean, it was, well, then it, it was, it was weird. It was instantaneous. So I once talked Chris into catching the tube because yeah. we were going from a rehearsal to something. I can't even remember what. And I went, and he went, well, we'll have to get a car, Bobby. You've got to get a car. I said, we're not going to sit in a bloody car in the middle of London. You pull it, let's get on the tube. There's only four stops up there. So <laughs> I, it, it, no. cars, though. Yeah. Yeah, so he didn't he didn't like getting on the tube. And of course, then as soon as we got down there, everyone's looking at him. There's people coming up wanting his autograph and all that. And then they see me and they immediately then did know who I was. That was a really weird experience. And with Craig, you could sit out or sat outside a cafe with Craig in Soho once, and he was asking people that didn't look and stop if they hey, do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> so very different so when i was with them or with danny uh you know it's very and in fact i was with danny uh, about a month ago in in uh, notting hill in portobello where near where he lives and it's just impossible to move with dan because everyone knows him and then they all realize who i am and then you get so I, we did about as we had, we met for lunch we were together for about three hours i reckon we did 200 selfies in that time oh, wow. but that's because danny encourages it i mean <laughs> But yeah. yeah, generally speaking, I wasn't recognised. I absolutely have no recall. I don't think anyone was that was going was watching the, in the audience going, "Oh my God, that's Crichton!" Mm. <laughs> you know, no one. I would say, I would say, no one except my wife would be the only one. <laughs> she was going, "Oh, that's Crichton!" <laughs> yeah, she was nudging people. That's Crichton, and they went, "Who's that?" You know. <laughs> And I'm were... going to be pregnant with his baby very soon. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> how did you find Rick and Ada's performance to work with? Just a joy. I mean, I think the thing is, if you, I have a very strong memory of doing a lot, spending a lot of time with Rick doing that, not so much with Aid. So I think my, you know, on screen relationship was with Rick more than Aid. So I do remember, I kind of remember like talking to him, how we do the leg, how we, when I punch him. You know, all those, how we time when I'm drinking and there's all that stuff. I can't even, you know, there was a lot of discussion, which uh, 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 Aid wasn't really involved with. But because of have, knowing Ed and through Ed, Ruby Wax, and through Ruby Wax, Jennifer Saunders, you know, I kind of knew Aid more, I suppose, mm. in terms of outside work. So I'd met Aid more times. I'd really met Rick only one or two times. You know, I didn't know him at all well. And, and also, you know, I've sort of seen aid a few times since those periods um you know through really through ed and ruby that was you know so i've worked a lot with ruby more more recently uh, you know and, and obviously worked with ed a lot so you know that's the connection i think i was going to say the characters they play rich and eddie are quite sort of unique characters in the world of sitcom they're sort of quite they're slightly grotesque they're very perverse um, yeah. and they have a sort of cartoon world what do you sort of make of, of the of them as sitcom characters i mean they're I just think they're glorious because they just don't give a shit. 
about <laughs> the sort of the you know or the, you, you, I'm sure there's there are I know there are books about how to construct a sitcom and how to develop the characters and they just sort of look back on fuck that. <laughs> I'm going to do a bloke who's a massive perv who's who, who stabs his best friend in the scrotum with a fork at any opportunity slams his head in the door for no reason then the gas man comes around to read in the gas meter and they beat him to death with <laughs> cooking implements I mean you know what the what's the character I don't know is there a backstory to I of them if there is you kind of don't want to know what it is mm -hmm. i just i just thought it just felt like how do you make what do you call that when you make whiskey um oh, uh, uh, distillation distilled you know highly distilled comedy right. that's what it felt like more than the in, in the young ones there was a they were sort of characters that you could sort of sense had a backstory and why are they there whereas with a bottom i thought it was a, a beautiful piece of anarchic comedy you know with no other worries it didn't have any anxieties about what else mm -hmm. you know well what you know what's my backstory because <laughs> even if i'd said what's my backstory you've got one leg and you and you lost it in the fork and shut up just fucking punch him you know that's the backstory <laughs> well yeah we like to ask uh, the actors who've been on the show their ideas of backstories and right. stuff with the characters so uh, i want to ask you so not your backstory. What do you think happened to your character after the episode with his leg missing, <laughs> his leg missing. and his other one obviously hideously mangled from yeah. being <laughs> dislocated and put back in and blind drunk? What, what do you think happened after? <laughs> That's because I've forgotten about the they mash up the, his yeah. real leg. This is, this is the wrong leg. So, okay. I mean, yeah, I haven't. Yes. What happens? He had to hop out to go to the, 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 the clinic to try and get a new leg. I mean, the... One of the most amazing slash disturbing responses I had to being in bottom was at the Oxford services on the M on the M40. I don't know how long ago. I had an electric car. So within the last 10 years, and I was in the foyer getting a coffee, and there were some guys that came out of the bogs in shorts in the summer in shorts, and two of them had prosthetic legs, and one had a prosthetic arm. They were uh, ex-soldiers and they'd been injured in Iraq. And uh, I got taught, and they love Scrappy. So that's how I met them and talked to them. Mm. And I'd done some filming for, and some made some voiceover or something long time before for Help for Heroes, which was a thing, you know, where they get to drive Land Rovers and do get a rehabilitation for people who are like that. And I was looking at this guy, knelt down to look at this guy's leg because it was unimaginable piece of high tech equipment. It was amazing. And that was, I think, some members of the public slightly disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> but he loved bottom and that so i'd forgotten about it and i said oh my god we were making fun of people who had limbs missing and stealing their legs and selling it to put on and here's some people who's exactly that basically war veterans who'd suffered unimaginable horror and he said oh i love that episode of bottom you were in that was brilliant when they snicked your leg that was so funny <laughs> i'm talking right. and i'm going oh god and I just couldn't speak. And I was in tears at the end of it because it was, you know, a very emotional thing to meet these guys. They were so extraordinary. So that was that. So the backstory of, of uh, N, Mr. N Styles is difficult because he was sort of effectively a slightly negative character in that episode. And I did think, you know, the actual, but when you meet the actual people who have been in that position, you don't, you know, I don't want to take the well, piss. Well, I, I think I think he was only negative because he he was seeing Richie there stealing Valor, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 yes, and that was great. I mean, that side of it was great. 
that's yeah. it. Like, you know, Richie's the, the one in the wrong. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely, yeah. That's it. But and it was really also it. that, uh, you know, I don't know whether it was the right, you know, we, there was some discussion about it because I said, should he be a, an officer? You know, because that is the thing. You, I mean, I've experienced a lot of uh, people in the forces from doing scrap heap. In particular, we had Navy teams, RAF teams, Army teams, particularly the Navy is completely... It, it's just a reinforcing system for the British class system. So if you meet an officer in the Navy, he's basically a bloody good chap, talks like that, and gets the bloody job done. Mm. And if you meet a ratings, he's oh, he's like that because he's from Dorset. <laughs> and you go, how the fuck is this? Stuff? This is Admiral Nelson levels of class distinction. The same in the army. I mean, basically, bloody art. So I was going to do a bloody good chap officer, and it just didn't work comedically. So then I did a sort of rubbish kind of rough, mm. you know, I can't even remember what the accent was. But that was a, um, Ed By was very funny when I, when we were talking about, I do remember that. He was very funny when we talked about that because he went, oh, you're not going to do your bloody 10 different accents like you did with Crichton because Crichton went through a whole range of, Crichton was going to be Swedish at one time. And, you know, a lot of silly accents. And so uh, that, that was sort of curtailed and it was just, you know, generic squaddy. Now it's time for a quick word from our sponsors. Now, finally, in its 30th anniversary year, there's a book about Bottom. From the creators of the hugely popular podcast of the same name that regularly tops the iTunes charts and garners numerous five-star reviews, Talking Bottom is a guide to the cult sitcom for everyone, from the new viewer to the devoted fan. It's written by three obsessives who grew up watching the show and have no social lives. As well as guiding you through the TV episodes, live shows and film, we'll go behind the scenes, finding out how it was commissioned and what it was like to make, talking to the people who made it, including director Ed By. The book will exclusively examine first draft scripts from the TV episodes and find out how it was first conceived. We'll examine Rick and Aid's influences. There'll be previously unseen pictures and original artwork. And most importantly, we want you to get involved. Secure your copy via the Unbound website now and see what other exclusive perks are available for a variety of prices. And tell us what you would like to see covered in the book via the Talking Bottom social media pages. on the face of it has a sort of very classic sitcom set setup that you see in other things such yeah. as just red dwarf or um steptoe and son or Porridge. steptoe right really reminded me of that yeah people trapped together who probably shouldn't be trapped together but it also merges it with a very a very hyper uh, version of uh, slapstick comedy and cartoon yeah. violence do you think that's what makes it unique and uh and does anything else compare to it in that term do you think well i can't think of another another show with that level of slapstick. I mean, there, it was a really skilled, I mean, it was also Ed loved it. So it was shot beautifully. He knew how to shoot that sort of thing. And so, and when we've done kind of physical like explosions or Crichton's head being used as a, a ramrod or things like that, you know, that was very much Ed's, he got into that. He was really keen on it, but they're kind of, you know, pulling the nose hair out with the pliers. I mean, it's just genius, mm. genius timing and their physical you know, that sort of timing is like dancing. Because if you get that timing wrong, then there's always an injury. You know, you're going to have an injury. So they had to time that beautifully. And they did that so well together. 
So I think that was what the pleasure I got from it was the high level of slapstick. And it was also that, that repetition thing. So I remember having discussions about that, that you do something that gets a cheap laugh, a punch, a clang, a thump in the, you know, a frying pan in the face. You do it once and that's funny. You do it again, it's sort of funny. You do it 107 times in a row and it goes into another realm, which is the what the dang, like the gas, the man with the gas, dang, dang, they just did it for so long. And I, I, I always wanted to try and recreate those moments in Red Dwarf and it, we never did. It's the wrong show for it. But I just said, can I just keep smashing my head against the, the door for 10 minutes? You know, when we, when we talked really- to Ed Bai, he actually told us that uh, that scene with the gas man came about because Rick and the sound man who played the effects yeah. live got into a bit of a competition with each other and Rick was trying to catch him out. And so at one point you see him, he, he's oh, he stops, punch, doesn't he? He stops and fixes his wrist. <laughs> and, the guy, and the guy was on it. Great physical comedy. Yeah, I just love that. Yeah. The Joey seem to have a lot of physical performance, performing elements of clowning in there. Is that a yeah. thing that you, you do enjoy performing then? You would have liked to have done more of it in, in Red Dwarf. Oh, I mean, I think I, I did plenty, you know. Yes, I, yeah. I mean, I think there was just one or two moments where I went, can we do something like that? And I think they were bottom discussions, and as in, it's not bottom. You're Crichton and you're meant to be cleaning the toilets, yeah. you know, all that stuff. But I mean, certainly, yeah, the Joey's was, there was some... I mean, I was certainly one of the sort of more extreme physical performers in that group in terms of comedy. I mean, because I'm saying that because Chris was a, uh, uh, had been at the Royal Ballet School, was a proper actual ballet dancer. So when he did, and that was a, something you didn't expect to see, you go and see an alternative anti-sexist men's comedy group and someone does a jeté and a twirl that you would only see at the Royal Ballet and you, and they, you would hear the audience go, oh, what is this? You know, because he was an amazing dancer, you know, not just a run-of-the-mill bit of a dancer. So in terms of physicality, they, we had that immense advantage. of it. And I always wanted, I said, just do, just do, dance. let's just do dance. You know, it's amazing. When he did do a bit of it, it was so extraordinary to witness. It was, uh... so I loved that kind of, that sort of goofing around. And I've never really done it you know in a sense other than in the joeys I've, I've never found an outlet for that and now i used to be i could be knackered trying to do something like that there's i don't know there's the one thing i do now which bizarrely i haven't done for a long time but i used to do with my children when they were little and my wife is the only funny thing you've ever done she said this last night which is when i i mock up rally driving so I do all the noises and I change in gear and then the gear stick comes off and then the steering wheel comes off and I'm steering it with the, the knurled axle thing. You know, it's just a stupid little thing, but I used to do it with the kids on my lap and I'd move their hands and they did little steering with little gears. For some reason, my wife still after 35 years together is in hysterical laughter when I do that. And I forget that I could get a cheap laugh out of it. And I forget that I did, I did it for some reason last night and she she's still laughing now. Was that where the bell of the life thing came from when you did that car chase yes the car chase that you did because i was driving in that wasn't i but i wasn't allowed to make the noises all right yeah Yeah, it's a great bit of physical comedy in red dwarf i'd forgotten about that i well remembered yes no that's absolutely right but i do remember being taught well it's like craig when it whenever we had the bazookoids and we'd run in and Craig go, pew, 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 like when you're six. And they go, Craig, don't make the fucking noises. <laughs> we'll put that on after. <laughs> yeah. Yes, very much we're, so. we're fascinated by the dark and gross world Richie and Eddie incorporating Bottom. Um, yeah. And of course, Red Dwarf holds a very different but similarly unique sitcom setting. 
Yeah. Do you think it stands to reason that obviously the situation in comedy being, you know, dialed up from normality where the characters yeah. can be exaggerated, you know, that makes all the difference in making a truly great sitcom like Bottom or Red Dwarf? Yes, yes, I think you're right. And it does. And I mean, I think that uh, the, the difference is, and I think it's critical. Well, I mean, there's been so many more Red Dwarfs, haven't there, in terms of episodes. But what, what Bottom didn't do, which Red Dwarf does do, there is a sort of element of humanity within Red Dwarf, very much focused on around Craig, around Lister. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and there are moments of, I mean, not necessarily sentiment, but certainly, you know, heartfelt humanity. I don't know how else to put it. And I think that's why, in a way, why I still love Bottom, because they, <laughs> you know, they could have done that. There could have been a sequence where they've stabbed each other with forks, they've smashed each other in the face with frying pans, and then at the end they go, you know, I couldn't live without you, mate. And they have a hug. You cannot. Yeah, they that. undercut that, don't they? They have. There's one of the live shows in it. Thank you for being my friend. You hear ah, yeah. oh, it's like right, move on. Yes, and he's like, yes. did you hear what I said? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. The, but the pathos, you know, that was in Steptoe and so on, and that kind of, you know, yeah, that, that's where comedy and drama. Oh yeah, high, absolutely yes. Um, I mean, that's in a way. I think so. I as a kid, my I would say my favourite sitcom was Steptoe. Really? And the dad, I love the old, you, know, you dirty old man, all that, you know. And I loved his face, and that. He, so he was. A, so the two influences, I, I only realised much later. So after I'd been doing Red Dwarf for maybe five or six years, the two big influences were Herman Munster, Fred Gwynn in Herman Munster. So I was obsessed with the Munsters as a little kid. So that was on telly when I was a, in black and white when I was a child. Yeah. I loved the Munsters, and I loved Steptoe. And mm. my mum wouldn't let us talk in a steptoe voice we, my brother and i would do it you dirty old man do not speak like that my mum was very posh and she didn't she hated it i mean also uh, till death has do part mm -hmm. if we did alf garnet which we'd love to do so one time we were on holiday in cornwall i remember it very clearly my brother and i had to go out to sea we had to be waist deep in the sea in order to do alf garnet and i always <laughs> remember that standing there with the waves crashing against us you know, everywhere I look, as far as human I can see, bloody foreigners coming in the country. We were allowed to do it then, but we had to shout it out so she couldn't hear it. Steptoe and Son, of course, is quite similar uh, to Bottom in the regard that you've got characters that are kind of at the uh, the bottom of society's yeah. heap. Do you think that class plays an important factor in, in UK comedy? In UK comedy, definitely, yes. Yeah. I think it does. I mean, Dad's Arm is a really good example of that, of sort of embittered successful lower middle class as in captain mannering and posh laconic don't really care darling about the whole thing you know you know that was beautifully observed bit of class-based comedy and i mean it was a it is such a uniquely british thing it's only when you know i've now had the privilege of living outside the uk for quite some time and having like i had a french girlfriend for a long time and spent quite a lot of time in france and italy and you go, there isn't a class system. There isn't a class system here. It's based on your accent. There is wealth discrepancy and there's rich people and poor people. But you can, you can be a billionaire and have the same voice. And it's only your vocabulary in French. I mean, when I learned that, it's, you wouldn't ever be able to judge someone in the first three words you hear from them, how wealthy they were or where they went to school or what area of the country they came from. You'd have to get to know them a bit longer. Whereas in England, I can hear someone say four words and I can pretty closely place. We all can. It's just in our in our culture, isn't it? So I think that is why, you know, having... Uh, and that was, it. I mean, in a sense, Rick and A, bottom, they were classless, but they were at the bottom of the pile. Because in a sense, if you think of how, how Rick spoke, he didn't speak with like, he wasn't talking like a cockney 
or no. like a Mancunian, you know, a Liverpudlian. You know, he, he was sort of middle class, he, his accent. He's gone into it and he's a Tory, isn't he, Richie? Yeah. He's a, he's a horrible, snidey. Horrible, slimy Tory. And I've met people Tory like Tory. him who are horrible, slimy Tories. They really exist. <laughs> well, then he went on to do Alan Bastard as well, yeah. which was a yeah. very well-observed bit yeah. of horror. And those people, every time you see a new Tory MP who's been put in the cabinet office, never, none of us got a clue who he is. And you go, he's bent, he's a crook, he's two-faced, he's a liar, he's a cheat, and his mates are getting backhanders for, that we're paying for. He's Alan Bastard, you know, he's just... Even Richie and Eddie, whilst they lived in this sort of grotty, grimy universe in a fetid flat, they were still sort of quite quite nicely turned out, wearing, you know, yeah. Eddie always wore a suit, you know, Richie would wear a shirt and a tie. We always felt it was quite sort of... Uh, Similar to those sitcom characters who were trying to, you know, better themselves and rise yes. up the social ladder, like Basil Fawlty and, yeah. you know. That Rising kind of thing. Damp, all those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you're right about that. I mean, I think the other intriguing connection between, I'd not thought about it before, but between Steptoe and, which is kind of down to where the BBC is, but with Steptoe and Bottom is it was both basically set in Shepherd's Bush. You know, that's where that, and that opening footage now, when you think of, you know, I, I sort of imagine, a, well, like my son watching that and he sees people on a, sitting on a chair and there's sort of building works going on. Well, that 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 building work was finished in like 1993. It's a massive structure now, you know, and you think, God, that is so weird that how, I think that's the, that's a thing that I, I find hard to describe to, you know, people my children's age, how unutterably shit the, <laughs> the, the material world that we lived in in the 1970s. I lived in London in the 1970s. It was bomb damaged. I lived in a squat. The only reason it was a squat, no one wanted to live there because the building behind it had been blown up in World War II. This was 1975. So quite 30, what, 30 years after the war, it was a total wreck. And it was a wild garden that had been a house. It was brilliant. We had chickens in it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Sounds magical like place. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like, you know, and you sort of forget how, how awful that, the, you know, the, the structure of the buildings and how all that stuff was just such a tip. And they capture that in the set in, that Bottom has. I've lived in so many houses that were like that with a gas cooker yeah. that stank, you know, and was just really dangerous and a shitty old fridge that, you know. <laughs> I mean, we I had a fridge for years that you had to, we had a shovel in the house and you'd leave the, it, the door. It was on a slopey floor. So the door would always open. The fridge worked, but the door didn't shut. I don't remember. I can't, the magnetic strip had come off or so, you know, so it was really crap. And we had a shovel that you'd hook into two of the floorboards and put under the handle. And that's how you shut the fridge door. Yeah. I think I lived with that fridge for probably two years. You know, yeah. that was just normal. Improvise. Why not? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Aid has been quoted as saying that him and Rick essentially ripped off Galton and Simpson and they never, they never sued them over it. Um, right. Did you, did you ever talk to Rick or Aid about, Galton and Simpson and Steptoe and I think we I think we might you see I I really connect Steptoe with it so it is possible there were discussions about that in the rehearsal room but I mean I think by the time I did it so it was series two wasn't it yes they were in their stride with it so you know essentially for them it was another episode and there were some actors in it that were in that one and they were nice you know they were anything but horrible to me but it was it did feel like I'd kind of gone in to do that gig and they they were on a roll with it, you know. Established was... the universe and the influences were there. Does it does it surprise you that people are still talking about Bottom 30 years later? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and it is, you know, when people mention it, when they when they say, well, or also that's, that's one of the things of Twitter, it's kind of died down, but there was certainly a long period when I first went on Twitter and had people come and say, oh, Red Door, blah, blah. And they go, were you the guy sitting at the bar in Bottom with one leg? <laughs> that I've been asked that 
hundreds of times, you know, on both in real life and on Twitter. So, and that's, you know, still happens. So it is, it is, uh, you know, from my point of view, it was one week's work. You know, it was it, yeah. we, the whole thing was uh, started rehearsal on Monday morning. We, re- we recorded it, I think, on a Friday evening and that was it. Was it just one day's filming? Yes. Yes, it was. I'm just trying to make sure that is right. I'm pretty sure it was. I think we were one day in the studio because we did, we always did two days in the studio with Red Dwarf. I think it was one day. I think we did it in five days. Yeah. I think I think on bottom they would do two days in the studio if there was via, if there was some special effects that needed to be done. So if yeah. there was a big fight scene or something, they'd come in and record that the day before. Right. I, I guess that, for you, for you, there, it would have just been the one night in front of. I'm the pretty sure it was only one night. Yeah, I can't remember being in a studio like without an audience. I remember we did a, a camera rehearsal when there was no audience and went through all that. But uh, you know, I can only remember. Yeah. There, yes, I can't remember. Yeah. There's a lot of crossover between the actors and creatives on Bottom and Red Dwarf. Yourself, Peter Rag, Paul Jackson. Peter Rag, yeah. Ed By, Paul Bradley, Mark Williams, Lee Corns. Yeah. Was there ever any talk, rumours, whatever, of Rick and Aid coming on, doing guest spot on Red Dwarf? I can't, no. I don't think so. I would have loved it. Yeah, I can't remember even it being discussed. I mean, it would have been fantastic to have him as a sort of vile hologram. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to goad Rimmer. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, there wasn't. I mean, there was, just trying to think if there was ever, I can't ever remember that being discussed. No. It was brilliant. Rick, Rick would pop up in Black Adder as Flash Art every now yes. and then. But then him and Aid got to share a scene in the final series where Aid played a Gestapo officer who captured them. Yes, of course. I'd forgotten that. So I, what's interesting about that is they must have been next door to us they must have been rehearsing during that time because we overlap. We, we were basically there for the same time. We started and finished roughly the same time. We only knew that because Tony Robinson used to come and sit with us and have lunch with us quite often because he was less than enamoured of some of the members of the cast. I don't want to spread idle gossip, but I think there was that was quite an Oxbridge thing going on there, but with Ben Elton. So Ben Elton used to do the warm-ups for the Joeys. And we, so I've worked with Ben a hell of a lot of times. And when I, and I haven't seen, I don't see him very often now, but I, of all that group, he would be the one I know the best, other than Nige, I suppose. But Ben, the last time I saw him, which was probably five years ago, he went, all right, Robert, rock, yeah, right on the Joeys. He did a clenched <laughs> fist salute and said, the Joeys last day. I haven't been in the Joeys since 1985. I'm very happy you remember it. Because we did hundreds of gigs together. I mean, that was a very common thing. And he was extremely... A material that guy churned out was mind-boggling, you know, just... Was he a hard act to follow as a warm-up? You know, would you sort of go, oh, God, he's actually, you know, he's been too good? Yeah, no, I mean, he wasn't in the sense that he was really good and he would do a lot of new material every week. That What was threatening for us was we'd work out a show. There was one time we did a, a long run of, like, 10 weeks in a row on a Saturday night in a community centre in Covent Garden, so right in the middle of town. And he, every week he, he'd come down from Manchester. So I think he must have still been, this would be very early 80s. He'd come down from Manchester and have a whole new lot of material. We were doing the same, same exactly the same set every week. And he'd do a whole new lot of stuff about Mrs. Thatch and loads of gags. And I went, how do you bloody write that? You know, it's just incredible speed that he yeah, wrote that yeah. out. But yeah, but actually because he was a solo stand-up and we were a four-man troupe with really big opening songs and music and lights and, you know, a lot of other stuff, it didn't... You know, well, that was why he was a really 
brilliant for us. He was really good fun. Yeah, he's he's quite prolific when it comes to producing material. Yeah. Isn't Jesus, yeah. Um, yeah. In 2014, when Rick very sadly passed away, you tweeted how amazed and pleased you were to see all the papers paying tribute on the front page. Yeah. Which is not quite rare for a comedian to get that kind of reaction, but actually fully deserved for a man like Rick. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was so heartbreaking to hear that. And uh, I mean, because I, I hadn't seen him for years. I'd seen him at Nigel Planer's wedding. So he was there. And that was after he'd had his um, quad bike. bike accident. Yeah, which was really, that was heartbreaking. So Nigel saw a lot of him. And um, so that was, in a sense, my connection with Rick then was through Nigel. But no, it was just heartbreaking. Because what, I mean, I don't remember how old he was, but not old. Yeah. What, would you, what would you say would be your sort of defining memory of him? I think that moment that he said, watch the genius at work. <laughs> I think it was maybe it was watch the master at work. It might have been the, that term. Was such a lovely moment because... It was so contradictory that it should have, I should have been hugely offended and critical. And I was in awe. I was sort of in love. You know, I was just like, this is, I'm so lucky to be strapped to this really uncomfortable fucking stool nearly falling off. And this man is shoving his hand up my trouser leg. <laughs> it was just, you know, it did feel like an actual, like, I felt like, I'll tell you what, this is the way I can, only, the only way I can sum it up, is, which made it hard to do that episode. It was like I was in the audience. That's what it felt like. That I was watching this fucking amazing performer and I was really lucky because I was in the front row. You know, that in a sense, there's that that's the memory I have. It's not like we worked together in a collaborative way and it was, you know, which we did, but for those short moments that we did stuff together, but it was just awe-inspiring to be near that much. It's that much energy. So that's, I think, uh, I'm sure Rick Aid would say this, but there was a sort of electric energy from him that I remember from... You know, when I first saw him on stage and when he was doing that, there was some, which, you know, it's not unique just to him. There's other comedians I've I've seen or heard about or watched on TV that are of that level of sort of electrifying. You can't take your eyes off them, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Eddie Izzard is, is on that level when he does stand-up. I've seen his stand-up from really early days to his sort of superstardom. And he has something because it's very relaxed. It's not like I'm not comparing him with Rick in that sense. It's a very relaxed thing, but it is something that you don't look at anything else while he's on the stage. You know? yeah. And uh, uh, Rick had that in buckets. Uh, yeah. It was an extraordinary thing. I mean, right from Kevin Turvey, you know, I mean that I remember suddenly going, who's that bloke with the eyes going all over the place? <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, he always, always held my attention. And yeah. uh, so that little moment, I had that, you know, I feel that's a huge privilege that, that I had that moment by fluke of circumstance to spend that time with him. I mean, that was really, I was kind of aware that it was a mundane day to day day for him and a hugely important experience for me, you know. So I, was, I kept it in, I had to have a reality check. You know, I don't think, I don't think Rick would say it was fantastic being able to work with Robert, you know, it was such a privilege. <laughs> Don't think it was wasn't that way round, but it, I, but I'm so grateful that I did get that, get to do that. So big, I should thank Ed because I sort of forget about it. You know, it's one of those things that you just do and then you move on and do other stuff. I don't think I've ever thanked Ed for letting me be in the show, but letting Rick fill you up up the leg, letting, letting Rick shove his hand it up. Sounds my like it would be the best day of my life if it had happened, Robert. So, um... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even if it was a false leg. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Wow. <laughs> no, it was it was great fun. I see. I've, isn't it funny how you mix up memories? Because I, I my memory is that I met Judy afterwards uh, when she came round to the dressing room and I was getting makeup off or whatever. And that she was pregnant then, but you're at, I'm sure she wasn't. No, she wouldn't have been. So it was 1992. That's weird, isn't it? You get those things mixed up. 
remember from behind the scenes when the cameras weren't rolling? Was there anything else from your time during Bottom? I mean, it was in the rehe- it was in rehearsals. There was a lot of laughter. The stuff with there was a lot of experimenting with <laughs> Julia Sawala as the barmaid because she was so good at being so caustically. She reminded me of the women I fell in love with when I, who were sure. le- uh, fe- separatist feminists who just be able to look at a man, don't have to say anything, and you just shrivel under their gaze, you know, just as, so she was very, and I can't remember, I wish I could remember what happened, but there was some improvising going on where he was being really lecherous and disgusting. And she just didn't rise to the bait, which is how, what made it so funny. She didn't kind of get offended and tell him to fuck off. She just looked at him and went, you know, yeah, like, it's like she's heard it before. She's heard it so many yeah. times. And I mean, she was so gorgeous in that, you know, she was so pretty and it was, she was going out with, a famous actor at the time, and I can't remember who, who it was, who came and picked her up every day. And he was in Band of Brothers. Oh, That's Dexter Fletcher. Dexter, Dexter, thank you. Because I did, so I knew, I'd met Dexter quite a few times before that. So I knew him, I didn't know her, but she was great. Yeah, no, that was, I remember that very much. And then I can remember a long conversation with Chris Langham, which I, we don't want to, because we don't want to talk about him, which was very funny. <laughs> he was so wrong in some way. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen his early performances they were amazing and you may want to cut this out and not use it at all but he was a very funny performer it's just that it's all gone a bit cheesy <laughs> that's, that's a polite way of saying it i don't know who knows i don't know anything about him but i don't know him very well but you know yeah, of course well i mean you're a veteran of course of sci-fi conventions um yeah. <laughs> we you know we love them there's a lot of love and appreciation for for sci-fi but we we just wanted to say, you know, do you think there's any reason why comedy doesn't get the same amount of intense fan adoration as, uh, you know, that isn't sci-fi? You know, there's no, you know, cross-referencing of genre of comedy like in Comic-Con for sci-fi. Yeah. Do you think there's a, any reason for that beyond, the, obviously, there's a lot of geek, geek kind of crossover in sci-fi, whereas comedy people are a bit more kind of cool? <laughs> I don't know. Yes, are they? Yes. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, in that sense, I've straddled that divide yeah. uh, you know not intentionally but red dwarf is a sci-fi comedy and i mean i think the reason it has lasted and worked so well is that the sci-fi is plausible and has dignity it isn't taking the piss of the sci-fi genre if you like no. it isn't it isn't a piss take of star trek or star wars or anything like that so it, so we've had that thing where that we have definitely had fans that if they are if they do appreciate the comedy in red dwarf it's not apparent I think that's the nicest polite way of saying it. But. I agree. When I went to Dimension Jump, there were a few people who didn't seem to watch it for the comedy. No, the they watch it for the science fiction, which is yeah. confusing because from my point of view, it's like comedy. it's a comedy that <laughs> certain science fiction, you know, the <laughs> comedy science fiction, you know, but clearly for them, it's exactly the other way around, which is, but I mean, I think that is because, you know, Rob and Doug, the original writers and now Doug love sci-fi. Yeah. So they are proper, full-on, 100% sci-fi geeks. So they're not taking the piss out. They use it as a the setting. It's a plausible universe that they, that, that inhabits. So you're right. There is a, a crossover. So like the comedians that I know that are successful or have done stuff in the, over the years tend not to watch Red Dwarf. And I think they think of me as that, oh, the fucking idiot does the rubber head. You know, it's like, I don't have, I can't walk into a party where there's a lot of comedians that you may have heard of and they'll go, hey, Bob, fantastic. <laughs> it's, oh, it's the fucking rubber head twat. Why is he, why is he here? Well, <laughs> sure that's not what they're saying out loud. Well, I don't know. They're I'm just saying. jealous. Yeah. 
as yeah, well yeah. as um, as well as acting in uh, several of our favorite shows you're something of a renaissance man with a huge number of strings to your bow you as well as acting you write you present you do live tours and you're a notable supporter of green energy what interests you the most and if you could only choose one how would you define yourself oh god i mean i just want to point out that the the strings of my bow are fairly tatty <laughs> they're not high quality strings <laughs> it's basically bailing twine i found at the edge of a field um i think i have to say now that i feel uh, you know lucky through my career it is such a fluke thing that if i've even had a career i don't even know what it was but you know stuff happened that was great and i was very lucky bottom being a really good example of that but what i'm doing now is is a sort of a passion project that has been lifelong so and it's really come back to me recently because i was involved in a uh, a creation of a book about the early alternative technology movement in the uk where i I went to an event called comtech 74 so that dates it in 1974 in bath and it was community technology and it was i was obsessed with it so it was wind turbines solar heating uh, you know alternative agriculture how we could live in geodesic domes that had less impact on the environment low impact technology bicycles bicycle technology where you had four-wheel bikes which could carry cargo bikes all that stuff then you know i did i was obsessed with all that and was very involved in that and then it kind of just life took over and i made shoes which was a sort of basic I'm not going to work in a factory and mass produce things. I'm going to make things beautifully that last people a lifetime, all that stuff. And then it then suddenly fell on stage and everything went to poo. Well, it's sort of come back. And uh, some of the people that I met in the, my youth who are now retired, but were the two guys in particular who um, built a big wind, wind turbine at a, in a commune in Wales, which was a very hip thing to be involved in communes in Wales, in the Welsh mountains. They built a wind turbine, which is a wooden tower. You know, you think of what, what, when we see wind turbines today, just think of the exact opposite of that. You know, much, much smaller, made of wood, scrap heap. It was very like, if we built a wind turbine on scrap heap, that's what this would look like. It was made out of old recycled material. But it generated electricity for this house that didn't have mains connection, charged truck batteries and ran lights on a very, very, crude level and it all went wrong constantly but when it worked it was amazing that you were lit by that by the wind and it was a bloody windy house i kind of totally forgot that until it sort of came back and then it's clearly where my interest for in electric cars renewable energy all that stuff so fully charged has become now a really full-time job i mean Mm -hmm. an exhausting knackering full-time job and so everything else has kind of taken a bit of a backseat including writing which i do miss and i'm sort of hoping i can structure that business so that I, I'm le- slightly less full-time doing it. But to reach my age and have something to do that, like that, that keeps me, <laughs> keeps me off the streets, <laughs> is an incredible privilege. I mean, it's such a fluke that it, it worked. But I mean, I was kind of, when I, I was um, basically came across electric cars and the engineers that were building them in California in the early noughties when I was doing Scrap Heap and we'd made Junkyard Wars, American version of Scrap Heap in, in the States. And it was a big thing that was going on, which I was fascinated by because it didn't make sense really to start with. But then it sort of grew from there. And it took a long time. It wasn't like I didn't kind of go in an electric car and go, OK, this is the answer. This is the, you know, it was like 10 years later, I went, oh, yeah, maybe that electric car thing is something. Speaking of cars, we wanted to ask if there would be any more carpool and also to thank you for the information we've gleaned on it that we've, that we've used to base questions <laughs> on in previous interviews. Right. Um, yes, well, I am hoping to do some more. It's a, it's a, we want to do a sort of offshoot of, uh, so it would be within the fully charged 
universe, but mm. uh, we'll, we'll do some carpools. It's just a really good way of interviewing people. So there's a few people that we are hoping to be able to interview, but we'll be driving some exotic electric cars. I don't know what, you know, we can, but something along those lines. I certainly would love to. I mean, I got really exhausted doing it. So I think I did something like 120 episodes of Carpool. And that was a passion project because I could do it on my own. I mean, that was, so most of them I did completely on my own. And Aid, the one I did with Aid was such a, a joy to, I hadn't seen him for so long. And we had a picnic, we? We had yeah. a tragic <laughs> picnic on Hampstead Heath. <laughs> but he was so sweet and he was so, uh, so lovely. But I mean, that was an amazing experience doing that. So yeah, we certainly would like to do more. I mean, uh, yeah, we, we'll try. I mean, it was probably going to be energy wonks and, and uh, engineers from Rivian and Tesla and things like that. But, you know, hopefully will be interesting. Mm. So I how much know. money does Jerry Seinfeld and James Corden owe you for stealing your idea? <laughs> Literally hundreds of millions. I mean, the thing is, I think it's not fair to say that I was the first person to put cameras in a car and film what happened. I think there was um, uh, some sort of awful quiz show that was shot in a taxi before I did Carpool. Uh, but it was sort of, uh, it was really uh, uh, an experiment. So the cameras that I first got were from Scrappy. They were second hand. They were really cheap cameras that we used to strap to the machines that the teams made. And they they were like a like a tube of lipstick, mm. but with a wire and then a little box. And so they'd strap the camera to the perfect position to get the shot of whatever it was doing. But they were called suicide cameras because if the machine blew up, fell over, collapsed on top of it, it didn't really matter. And we did smash up quite a few of them. And then so I got two slightly battered but functioning cameras and I stuck them in the car and I drove my son, who would have been then about 13 or 14, I drove him to see his mate where they were going skateboarding. And it's a torrent of expletives <laughs> that my son does. And But what was interesting is that 10 minutes into the, he was doing it because the cameras were there. So he was just swearing because dad won't like me swearing. So he was okay. using all, and he was swearing at everything we were going past. So we go past a tree and you go, fucking trees. <laughs> God, why are you upset about trees? <laughs> fucking sheep. <laughs> Shitty stone walls. Because we live in the Cotswolds. That's what you see when you drive it. Yeah. Anyway, I could tell from watching it, and that's really what inspired it, was about 10 minutes in, we'd both forgotten. Both of us had forgotten there were cameras. I'd forgotten and that was then that, that I mean, I will never release that bit of f footage. That's for the family vault. But it's so funny. If, uh, my son is very, very amusing in it. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's the two of us as we would be without cameras. It was just yeah. and me slightly grumpy. I'm going to fucking drive him all that way just so he can go <laughs> skateboarding. You know, it was like pain in the ass and it was raining. But then there's another even more revealing one, which is my wife and I driving to London. Same thing where she's angry because I'm faffing about setting the cameras up. She just wants to go. And then she's driving and I'm in the passenger seat and I'm looking at the things and then I'm making sure it's working. Will it last long enough? And is the tech going to work? And she's going, oh, fucking, why do you have to do this? And then I forget and we're going through diaries and it's so revealing of the relationship because <laughs> I'm suggesting we on Tuesday, I'm not doing that. I've told you what I'm doing that day. You know, just <laughs> classic. Very uncomfortable viewing. I wouldn't want anyone else to see it. But I mean, that was so. But the clue was, oh, this is a good way of doing this to interview someone. You're not worried about the bloody cameras because I can't worry about them because I've got to drive, you know. So that was really where that came out of. But it did seem to sort of work. And it's, there's some brilliant people on it. I mean, the other thing is that that comes out of those quirks of fate. So I went to when I got my insurance it renewed. It was, I knew, and I talked to someone about it, and their insurance was much. I said, Why is my insurance so high? Because you know, you're, it says actor on the phone. And I, you know, I'm, I'm the shittest actor in the world. And I said, Really? So are actors really bad drivers? They went, No, 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 no. Actors actually have a really good insurance record for safe driving. 
but you might give someone famous a lift. And I went, oh, for fuck's sake. And then I went over Griff Reese jones Jack D, Eddie Izzard, those three people I'd given lifts to in the previous year. And I went, oh, are they? And I said, are they, would you count them as famous? <laughs> <laughs> said, at, that yes. point, at that point, your premium shot up even further. Yeah. But what I then thought was, fuck it, I'm going to take advantage. If I'm paying all that for that, I'm going to get some proper famous people in my car, you know, make sure I get my money's worth. So that was a kind of major inspiration for that. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Very thrifty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, talking of, you know, comedians and people you've had in your car, I mean, what comedy are you watching on the TV at the moment that you've been enjoying? Shit's Creek. Mm. I fucking love Shit's Creek. I think that's A lot brilliant. of people say that one. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't finished it. We we savour it. We savour it. My wife and I <laughs> say we only do one episode a night just because I think it's mm. – I think it might get too schmaltzy for my taste soon. It's on the cusp. You know, it has its moments where it gets a little bit heartfelt. But the – I think the characters are wonderful in it. I do love it. Um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I haven't seen that enough. So there's quite a lot of things that we often get turned on by our kids. But actually, um, that sounds wrong. I don't mean it that way. <laughs> but the one that we went the other way was uh, What We Do in the Shadows. So Matt Berry, I'm a massive fan of Matt Berry anyway. And I just thought that was brilliant. I loved that. And that was a, one of those things where... It's that uh, which uh, rem that reminded me of Red Dwarf. So it's ridiculous, fucking vampires in Brooklyn, and it's always dark, and it's a joke, and they're stupid, and it's like a jokey vampire, and then they really are fucking vampires that can turn into bats. So it has integrity as a sort of horror genre sure. thing, which I thought was genius when they first went bat and they turned into a bat. <laughs> they really are vampires. I love that. They really are 700 years old. He's he's bored and miserable. I mean, Matt Berry can can just stand still and do nothing, and I laugh. Yeah. He's yeah. A, I think he's a genius comedian. So I think I'm hoping they're making more. I think they, there is talk of it. But also Toast. So I'm a big fan of Toast because of him. We were going to end by asking you what you're up to uh, at the moment, but uh, it seems like Fully Charged is sort of occupying you uh yeah, it is really. And it is. Uh, I mean, it's because I mean, in a sense, it's partly, you know, the show is a success. We've just had a big live event, which was phenomenal. And uh, I've always been the sceptical one. If no one's going to come. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a disaster. And it wasn't, thank goodness. And it wasn't a super spreader event. It was outside. And we had 16,000, over 16,000 people turned up over the weekends, which is like... Mind-boggling, but we had something like two and a half thousand test drives in different electric cars, and just an incredible array of stuff on display, and amazing talks and panels. So that takes up a huge amount of energy and time. And that, but what's happening in that field is just very exciting. Next year we will have three, certainly two functioning, but possibly three electric aircraft on display at the show. Oh, wow. And that's a, a thing that, like, 10 years ago when I first drove an electric car, and, oh, I think this is a brave new technology that could change the world. You know, I had no idea. It's pure guesswork, and the fucking batteries will explode, and Jeremy Clarkson will be right, and we'll all throw them away after two weeks, and it'll be a huge embarrassment. And thankfully, uh, he's been proved profoundly wrong. But one, one thing I never even thought about, let alone speculated about, was, was aircraft. And we've now seen a couple of large electric aircraft, one of which we've had to sign an NDA, so I'm not allowed to talk about it but it will appear. So I think certainly your generation, you will be able to fly around Europe in electric planes within the next five to 10 years. It's, it won't be an, ex you may not even know. Hmm. You'll just go, you know, you'll go to the airport. The one thing that may change is you might go to an airport that is the size of a football pitch, 
because they don't need a runway because they they go straight up and down. And we're talking wow. big, not not like two seater drones, big bloody airplanes with 150 people in them. And they will only fly four or five hundred miles. They won't have you wouldn't be able to go across the Atlantic in them. Mm. But for between cities, that's going to be a mm. real change in the way we fly. You know that is extraordinary. And uh, so when we first came across it, it was like little startup companies that had developed a little uh, one-seater test plane. It's now Rolls-Royce, BAE Systems, Airbus Industries, putting in billions, literally billions of dollars into developing planes. Boeing, Boeing, spending a fortune. Because you know, there's huge economic advantages to mm. having quieter planes. So one of the things that is going to be clearly be a thing, and that might be when you're my age, you could get onto a very big aeroplane, say at Heathrow, like an Airbus A380, you know, like a massive transatlantic plane and it takes off with electric power so it's really quiet ducted fan technology is so there's it's like a it looks like a jet but it isn't so but once it's up in the air about 10 15000 feet you've depleted the battery to the point of no return <laughs> and that's when you fire a tiny by today's standards tiny jet engine and that flies you across the Atlantic, so the fuel use is like 10% of what we use now. It's a really small amount because once you're that high, pushing the plane along is much easier. It's taking off, uses tons okay. of fuel. And so, and the idea being you go there at three in the morning and you can take off because no one's going to hear it. Right. You know, once it's over about a thousand feet, you can't hear it. So it's much, much quieter. So that means they can run airports 24 hours a day and landing. So that's the theory. And that's what I've spoken to aviation engineers. That's what they're hoping to achieve but they're a long way off that that's not going to happen in the next even 15 years i don't think but mm. in the next 25 that's not impossible to imagine so you know and that when they then they would use biofuel which i hate but you know they might be able to then mitigate some of the use of that that thing but i think i'm i doubtful i'll see that but i think it's very possible you will but that so that stuff it, across the board is so exciting Really quick fact for your listeners that in 2010, to construct one kilowatt hour of battery pack cost about 1200 1, to $1,400, $1,200. And now it's about 110 So that price change is really dramatic. Now, there's a lot of sh shit going down at the moment, as we know, with gas price and with chip shortages. And there's going to be big hiccups in the next couple of years in that development. But within 18 months when you if you were going to buy a car and you go into a showroom the electric cars will be the cheaper ones they'll be cheaper than the petrol ones and by then the fuel for the petrol ones will be mind-bogglingly expensive you know so that is you know there's no argument to be made you know when i first started making footage shows, there was an argument to make in favor of electric cars there's no point making an argument that's what's going to happen you yeah know, it's not yeah. it's not if it's when you know, and how soon. And it's really the distribution industry. If you study that, which of course I'm a nerd, so I do, how fast that's happened. So, you know, it's when a kind of company in the UK buys a, a electric van and they have a picture of them taken in front of it, you know, like three or four years ago. Yeah. And we're going green with our electric van and they got one. And then you hear that Amazon have just ordered 150,000 electric vans in the United States. Yeah. And there's a couple of companies here that have ordered in the tens of thousands. So, you know, the distribution company, like the delivery people who deliver stuff to your house. And we've already, even out here in the sticks, I've had two vans now deliver boxes of stuff here and they're electric vans. And that's going to happen really, really quickly. And the charging infrastructure to maintain that has got to be economically plausible and usable and reliable because it's companies using it. And if it goes wrong, they're going to kick off. So all the knock-on effects of that will benefit 
the rest of us, you know. So there are, you know, it's an amazing world to be part of, you know, in a sense, we constantly are drowning in, can you come and see this thing? An offshore wind, you know, people in the UK don't know. I mean, it's been shit the last few weeks because it's been still and the gas price, thanks to Mr. Putin, has gone through the roof. So it's a real, but it's going to get windy again soon. And we've got a colossal offshore wind developed already, you know, which we're generally unaware of, but very often 50, 60% of the electricity you use in your house is from wind. That does happen. Those days happen regularly. A, a set up for Richie and Eddie, a colossal offshore wind, sounds like. <laughs> yes. Eddie might waft in from the Well done for bringing it back to bottom. So I shouldn't go, you're absolutely, oh, I would love it. I would love them to be able to, to hear someone talking about colossal offshore wind. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining yeah. us here today. It's been no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Be remiss of us not to ask what's going on with Red Dwarf. Are there any specials or anything you can share? Oh, and, and you had to ruin it at the end. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, there, there is that we are all hoping that we can do more. Okay. I can say that, and I definitely know that. Um, so it's just whether we can all survive long enough to do more. I think there is. it's not impossible. It's not hugely likely. No. But there's a couple of projects that are stewing away on the back burner that i would love i would love to be able to do so we can only hope good to hear that's good to hear i mean i've heard craig's got covid at the moment yes i know and i haven't i know he's not well i've not heard any any more detail than than there's been on twitter but yeah no i'm very worried about him no he's i mean he's so tough and he's got through so much but yeah. you do i do worry because he has been on about 450 Marlborough Reds a day for the last 50 years, you know. <laughs> Quite the list of diet, really, isn't yeah. it? Well, thank well, you. Yeah, we'll, we'll thank you very much, Robert. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you very, very much indeed. Thanks for having me. You take care. Thank you.